So we come now to the proclamation of God's word. We are in Matthew 26, and I'll tell you, I was—I'm not the best um, sermon title creator. Some people are really creative about that. I just kind of say what it is. I, I thought, though, of calling this the Fellowship of the King, and wondered if all the Lord of the Rings fans would pick up on it. But then again, I, I thought, you know, whenever I do sermon illustrations, which I don't do them that often. Um, I thought I, I always do Lord of the Rings or Narnia. So we'll just avoid that and call it the King's Table. And that is really what it's about, is the Lord's Table. As we've been looking in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew presents Christ as the King, the King of his people who has come to establish a kingdom so that he might reign in mercy and truth and justice and they might enjoy his rest forevermore. Our text this morning is in Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30, as we are quickly nearing the climax of the cross. We do read these words. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city as a certain, to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. And I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. And when, he was rec- when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. Began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi, he said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we ask now once again that you would, through your word, attend it with your spirit so that we might see and might hear and might know your gospel. And in knowing, we might enjoy the blessings of being your children. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, generally speaking, we all like to be prepared for things that happen in our lives, right? Um, The unexpected many times leads us to 
be anxious or worry about what might happen or occur. And so we try to prepare for the future as best as we are able. Education is, is, is all about being prepared for a career, for life as an adult, being able to function in society, find a job, survive, start a family. And as we navigate life, we try to anticipate the many twists and turns it brings, uh, whether they're financial or personal or relational. And so we try to prepare as best we can for what may come. And even in the scriptures, especially in the wisdom literature, uh, we see that being prepared for life's many ups and downs is a wise thing to do. The lazy person in Proverbs 6 is told to consider the ants who, without having any chief officer or ruler, prepare their bread in the summer and gather food and harvests. So we like to be prepared, but unexpected things happen, things for which we cannot prepare for. There are things that no matter how much you prepare, when they happen, you're just not ready for them. I mean, such is the very nature of the world in which we live. Hard things come, bitter experiences occur, and you can't be ready for them. Unexpected illnesses, the the loss of of a job, of financial security, even death itself. But God in his wisdom and his mercy and his grace has not left us who know him as his people without preparation for this world. And he has given us a steady, a constant, and a perpetual way of finding peace, refuge, and rest, and renewal through the many unexpected twists and turns of our lives. He has given us the blessing of Jesus' very presence with us to comfort us and care for us and keep us. He's given us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper because it was started by Jesus, our Lord. It belongs to him, and thus it is his to give to us so that we might be prepared as God's people, as citizens of his kingdom, not only for this present, but for that which is to come, which he has promised to all of us who trust Jesus and lean upon him by faith alone. Jesus' first disciples, as they sat at this meal, were about to face the the greatest storm in their lives. He was about to die. He was about to be taken from them. And what we see initially is that Jesus' disciples, they were not prepared for his death. The time of the Passover had arrived the most important celebration of the Hebrew people. It was a meal signifying redemption and God's deliverance of them. It was God's means of strengthening their faith in his promises by rehearsing to them how he once again has rescued them from slavery and bondage in Egypt and protected them from death itself as it passed over them. And so the disciples come to Jesus as this all-important time has come. And they say, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
And Jesus replies with some very specific instructions. He says, go into the city. You're going to find a certain man. You're going to say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples go out. They do exactly as Jesus directed and they prepare the Passover. And this is the exact same thing or a similar thing we saw happening just a week prior when Jesus enters into the city. If you remember, on that day when he enters in the city, he tells his disciples to go to a particular village. There they'll find a donkey. They will untie him. And Jesus will use that to ride into the city. And if they were stopped, because certainly that is suspicious behavior, they were to say the Lord needs it. You see, Jesus is sovereign. And so he says here, go into the city to a certain person, tell them I am coming for Passover dinner. Now, some people don't mind unexpected or uninvited guests. In fact, they they enjoy that. Uh, Some people don't enjoy it at all. Many want to be prepared, to be ready, to, to clean the house, make the meal, get everything in order for when the guests arrive. We like to invite others, but we usually don't like them to invite themselves. (laughs) But that's what's happening. Jesus comes and says, I'm coming to your house for dinner. But Jesus can do that because he has all authority. And so we see again his sovereignty on display. We see his absolute divine and kingly authority. He is acting as the king that he is. He has every right to say, I am coming to your house. Prepare the Passover for me. For he has created all things. He has prepared all things for his purposes. And so he tells his disciples, go and everything unfolds as Jesus has determined. Whereas Jesus says here, my time is at hand. That means his death is imminent. It is coming. Last week we saw that death was perfectly planned by God. Jesus was prepared for it. But his disciples were not. And so they come to the house. The meal's now prepared. The table set. All the disciples are, are now there and they're seated on the ground, reclining at the table as was and still is the custom in many parts of the world. And they are sitting there then eating and Jesus breaks the bad news that he will be betrayed by one of them. And he doesn't try to soften the blow of those words or mask his words. He, he emphasizes with great clarity, truly I say to you, one of you will betray, betray me. Truly I say as a rhetorical device that uh, means what follows comes with a certain divine certitude. It's like saying, thus saith the Lord. This is absolutely going to be happening. There is no other option. One of the twelve, one of his closest and dearest friends would turn their back on him and betray him. 
And after three years of traveling in the heat of the Mediterranean sun and the chill of moonlit nights, after watching him perform the wonders of God, giving the blind sight, the deaf hearing, even raising dead to life, after sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing sermon after sermon on the gospel of the kingdom, after being exposed to truth by truth himself, after watching him silence the religious leaders who opposed him, after being saved from the power of storms by the power of his word, after experiencing his gentle care and love towards them in so many ways, after all that, now he will be betrayed by one of them? Matthew describes their reaction in verse 22. He says, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? They're cut cut to the very depths of their hearts with a deep and a crushing sorrow. And from that distress, they began to question Jesus. Is it I? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And Jesus simply repeats in more detail, that he will be betrayed by one of them, one of the inner circle of disciples. He says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. That could have been any one of them. They were all sitting and eating with him. They had all scooped the food from the same dish together that night. All were capable of so heinous, a sin as betraying the Lord of glory. Jesus continues again by affirming his death as being part of God's determined plan. As he says, the son of man will go as it is written. But then he couples that with a statement of human responsibility as he says, woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You know, the scriptures, they never pit God's divine prerogative, his determined plan against human free will. They simply affirm both and that God works through the agency of humanity to accomplish his predetermined plan. And God had determined that Judas would be the one to betray Jesus. But Judas would be fully responsible for his own actions. He would act of his own volition and betray Christ. So Judas leans in. After all, he's, he's already gone to the Pharisees and to the Sanhedrin, the high priests. He's already gone to betray Christ. And he quietly leans in. So the others might not hear. And he says, is it I, Rabbi? He doesn't call Jesus Lord. He simply calls him teacher. Already his heart betrays him as the betrayer. He does not submit to Christ in love and faith as the Lord and King that he is. And Jesus replies with those sorrowful words that are so condemning. You have said so. This whole dinner table revelation of Jesus' betrayal and death demonstrates to us a heartbreaking reality. 
And that when God removes his presence, it results in fear and confusion and chaos. And for three years, this little band of 12 disciples have been in such close relationship with the king. But now it appeared that with his betrayal and death, that fellowship was coming to a very abrupt and traumatic end. You see, when you do not have fellowship with God, your life will be adrift with little to no purpose. Chaos and confusion and fear have no answer because the very source of joy, the very source of truth and life is not present with you. The disciples, they had come to know Jesus as the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, the Christ. That means that He is the mediator, the one through whom they have been restored and renewed in fellowship with God Almighty. They knew the presence of God in their lives. But if He was gone, how would they have that kind of intimate access to God, to the God of heaven? The absence of fellowship with God, of course, is a a consequence of the fall. And when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, they felt the rupture of their relationship with God in a very real way as they are cast from the garden of His presence, never to be there again. And so the whole plan of redemption, the whole gospel is about the restoration of that relationship. Jesus is called the Emmanuel, God with us. To know him is to know God since he is God and is able to restore to us to that right relationship that was broken with the Father. And he does that through the Spirit. And how then will the disciples find rest for their weary souls if the giver of rest isn't present with them? How will they know the blessing of fellowship with God if the mediator has been taken away? They were not prepared for his death. But because of that, Jesus, in his great love, prepares his disciples for a new life where they will enjoy that fellowship with him. He prepares them to to face life as citizens of his kingdom through a new and better Passover meal. In the celebration of the old way comes this new way as Jesus institutes his supper. And this meal, like the Passover, was meant to be perpetual. This meal, like the Passover, would look back to Jesus' death and and the benefit that it brings, not just to these twelve, but to everyone who calls upon his name for salvation. This meal, like the Passover, would call us to look up to the living Redeemer. And this meal, like the Passover, calls to look around at the new community of God's people, his kingdom. And this meal, like the Passover, would look forward to a new and final day when Christ returns and every promise is finally complete in him and God's people will enjoy his presence forevermore. 
And so to understand the Lord's Supper then, it would be good for us and helpful to consider what it is not. Because throughout church history, there's been much confusion. First of all, it is not a, a sacrifice of Jesus anew. Instead, it reminds us and yet unites us with his once for all death. It is the commemoration of the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was more than sufficient to atone for every one of our sins. Forgiveness has already been poured out in full. For the blood of Jesus was poured out in full for his children, for those who belong to him. The bread and wine, they are not transformed into the physical body in any way, shape, or form. The bread is just bread and the wine is just wine. Jesus' physical body at this very moment is exactly where we need it to be, seated at the right hand of the Father, meaning that he has completed the entire work of redemption on our behalf. And there is nothing more that needs to be done in order to achieve the forgiveness of sins. The sacrifice has been complete. It is finished. But this meal is also not just a mere memorial. For while Jesus is not physically present with us, he is indeed spiritually present in a real and special way with those who come to him in faith. When we take of the bread and the wine, we are taking in Christ. If we take it in faith, we are being united to him in such a way so that all the blessings of the gospel become ours in him. And this is why we call the Lord's Supper a means of grace, a way of God communicating for us through Jesus as he is spiritually present with us, the forgiveness of our sins and new life everlasting. Our confession thus in accordance with the eternal truth of God's word states, were the receivers, that is those who are of faith in Christ, believing the gospel, were the receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, meaning that the, the elements do not change into Christ's body, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified in all benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are in out, are to their outward senses. So in other words, just as you take that bread and you smell it and that wine and you taste it on your tongue, just as you hold them in your hands and see them and feel them, so you spiritually taste of Christ and his death when you partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's why we don't hesitate to call it a sacrament. By that, we don't mean that in the action itself, that we are earning God's grace sacramentally. 
And that somehow we are eating and drinking to remove our sin. But what we mean is that the Holy Spirit effectually applies the benefits of the gospel to us through the table. If we come in faith, for we are coming to Christ himself. Notice Jesus' words in verse 28. When he gives his disciples the cup, he says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, this is a promise. A promise is a guarantee, a seal that is pressed upon the soul of the person who has come to the Lord's table believing in him. Charles Hodge calls the Lord's Supper the handwriting and the signet of the God, Son of God attached to the promise of redemption. And this is the same thing we understand and believe concerning how God works through His Word as it is proclaimed. God's Word is truth. It is the power of God to salvation, the Bible tells us. But we are also told that the Holy Spirit must attend to its reading, its preaching, in order for it to be effectual, in order to convert and to sanctify a believing sinner. Otherwise, it simply falls on deaf deaf ears. It's the Spirit of God that makes the Word of God the wisdom and power of salvation. And so it is with this table. When you come to this table in faith, resting and trusting in Christ as your only Savior from sin, and then the Holy Spirit attends to it in such a way that you are not only reminded of what Jesus did for you, so it's not just a mere memorial, but the promise of forgiveness is sealed upon you. The Lord's Supper really and truly preaches and conveys to you as a believing recipient Christ and all his benefits. And that is why we call it a means of grace, a sacrament. So Jesus then, we see, is comforting and caring for these 12 disciples by preparing them for his death, by giving them his life. Through the, though this relationship that they knew with him bodily was soon to end, from that end would spring a new life, a new relationship with Jesus. The fellowship was not ending, it was only deepening. A new chapter, a never ending chapter, was being written and opened up to them. After giving them the cup and bidding them to drink of the blood of the new covenant, Jesus says in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is talking here about the time after his resurrection. So while he will die, he is leaving them with a promise that he will rise and live again. And there are two aspects of what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. First, he is telling them that when they celebrate this supper, they are looking forward to another meal, a never-ending meal. As we read in Revelation 19, God 
prepares this marriage supper of the Lamb when Jesus will sit and drink and eat and dine and fellowship and commune with His people for all eternity. He has that moment in mind. But there's another aspect that Jesus gives here that helps to prepare His disciples for the death of Him that was to come. And it is here that the the meal that Jesus is instituting with those first disciples 2,000 years ago now joins us in the present on this Lord's Day. See, in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, we read that Jesus, after having made purification for our sins, the forgiveness of sins like he talks about in the Sopter, after doing that, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He is seated on a throne physically right now. That means he is already ruling. He is already reigning over his kingdom. It is here. Now it's still growing. It's still being built. It's not complete yet. It will be. And that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. But it is here. The kingdom is here. And so when Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, He very much has in mind us today. For we drink and we eat and we fellowship with Him at this supper. In the supper, we commune not just with each other, but Christ our Lord Himself. And so through this, Jesus prepares you, He prepares you to fellowship with Him forever through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Sometimes this narrative of our text in the Gospel of Matthew is called the Last Supper. But it wasn't the Last Supper of the Lord Jesus. It wasn't the Last Supper at all. Because every time you and I come to this table, we are dining with the King again. You know how we need that. Because if Jesus could prepare his first disciples for his death with a simple meal, he most certainly can prepare you and I to fellowship with God for all eternity in this life and the next. And so this meal, this meal, it is for you, brother. This meal is for you, dear sister. It is for you when the burdens of your heart feel too heavy to bear. It is for you when the weight of your own sin crushes upon you. It is for you when your heart is cold and it feels that the fire of your faith has diminished to just a smoldering ember. It is for you. This bread is for you. Bread that signifies life. Bread that nourishes and fortifies. Jesus says in John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. As the bread of life, Jesus sustains those who partake of him. Eating the bread is to take Him who makes us alive 
by his death and resurrection. The death of Christ put to death, death itself, and through his resurrection, we are risen now, even now, to new life. And that means we are not known by our sin or the sins that we commit, but we're known by the one who gave himself for us. Oh, sin kills us. The end of sin is always death. It's the curse that it brings. And if you choose to live in your sin, you are choosing death. But Jesus, as the bread of life that we partake of, is our life. We who are once dead in trespasses and sins are made alive in him. And so eat of his body, eat of his bread, and know his life that is for you. This wine is for you. Wine in the Bible signifies both joy and sorrow. Joy in that it warms the hearts. It brings uh, a great fellowship in community. And so much so that in the scriptures, the absence of wine is used to describe the judgment of God on people. And it pictures sorrow as well. Because it is like blood that is shed. And such a fitting reminder then of Christ's blood that was shed. And as such, the wine of the Lord's Supper preaches to us the joy of our redemption that we have because of the sorrow of Christ on the cross where he drank the cup of God's wrath for his people. Jesus drank every drop of God's holy wrath so that we can drink from a never-ending cup of His mercy. The lesser gods of this world, they promise joy upon joy only to fail us and preach so loudly to us today is the idea that if you are simply true to your inner self, you will find the joy that you are deeply longing for. But we cannot trust our hearts. We cannot trust ourselves. The heart is bent towards sin and sin leads towards death. But in Jesus, there is true joy. And so he holds out to you every Lord's Day, every time this supper is celebrated, a cup of joy, a cup of joy to you, weary Christian, to refresh yourself, to warm your heart, to be renewed in his covenant love towards you. Like a good wine that only gets better with time, this cup of Christ can be sipped and savored again and again and again. The cup of his joy never runs dry. So when you are spiritually parched, despondent because of your own failures and life's many frustrations, this cup is for you. When doubts cloud your mind and you struggle to believe, and you say, Lord, help my unbelief, this cup calls out to you to hold fast to your confession of faith and simply drink for the forgiveness of sins. There's so much more that can be said about the Lord's Supper than we can actually consider this morning. But the one thing that I hope you take away is that God has given you this meal because He wants to meet with you, to commune with you, to have fellowship with you. It is that fellowship that prepares you for whatever may come 
and the week ahead, the days to follow, the years that may come. And through this supper, Jesus is truly present with you if you but come and dine in faith. He will keep you until that day when we'll sit down with Him forever. Perhaps the saddest part of the Lord's Supper isn't His death that it commemorates, for He is alive. But it is the fact that it does come to an end. We do go out. It does close. Till the next time we celebrate. As we read in our text here, after dining, Jesus and His first disciples went out and sang a hymn. The meal was over. We do the same. After celebrating the table, we sing a hymn of thanksgiving for the life that is ours by God's grace. But one day, one day, we'll sit down at this table and we'll never get up again. We'll sit down at the table of the king and the feasting and the joy will never end One day we will find ourselves in that great Sabbath rest when all the saints of God from the beginning of time to the coming of Christ will sit at his table and eat and be satisfied forevermore. But till that day comes, Jesus calls to you, come and sit and feast, come to my table, come and fellowship with your King. Let us pray. Father in heaven, indeed, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, that we might know you and have fellowship with you. And you also have given us this sacrament, this means of grace of communicating to us again and again the rest that is ours that we so desperately need. And so I pray, Father, even this morning as we would celebrate this meal, that you would strengthen the faith of your children. We pray this in Jesus' name till he comes. Amen.